Happy New Year and welcome to the Fencing Podcast. Happy New Year everyone, I'm Sean. And I'm Gavin. And uh, welcome back. Yeah, it's been a, a bit of a long break, we've got quite a lot to talk about this time around. Yeah, well, because of, the, because of the festivities and New Year and so on, there's been a little bit less fencing actually crammed in since our last one, yep. but still still plenty of good stuff to, to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get going on the, on the sort of fencing related stuff though, so a couple of, couple of bits from uh, our last episode, yes. which... Sound quality wise was how would you describe it? Uh, awful. So it was awful. It was a bit of a disaster. We did sound like we were recording in a wind tunnel with uh, <laughs> with buckets on our heads. Yeah. Um, still not quite sure why, but hopefully this one's going to sound uh, an awful lot better, even if the quality of the contents just much yeah. the same as yeah. ever. Well, we'll, we'll, yeah, we're, we're keeping an eye on it this time, just to make sure that nothing creeps in, unlike last time. Onwards and upwards. Yeah. Other thing that we well, we added a little extra piece at the start of part one yes. of the of the last episode. Um, about the the decision by UK Sport not to fund British fencing for its world class program for the the Tokyo cycle, uh, you know that announcement was made after we recorded the podcast, but before it was actually transmitted. So we had to do this little add on at the beginning. There's not a whole lot of further news since that announcement. Um, no, British fencing are going to appeal against the decision, but it, as I understand it, it's pretty much an appeal being made to UK Sport asking them to change their mind. It's not being made to some sort of independent body that will... No, and I don't think there is any appeals process in this one, is there? I believe that there is, but as far as I'm aware, no sport that's made an appeal against having their funding removed altogether has ever been successful. So we're not really holding out a whole lot of hope that that that's going to result in any any kind of major change. you have to, you have to go through the process. You have to say that you're not happy. You have yeah, of to course. Sort of, yeah. So I so I don't, I don't blame British fencing for doing that. They really really should do that. But yeah, bleak. Is that is, I think is the the word I'm using? So. Yeah, it is. I mean, we've we've mentioned the world class program in in the past. We got an interview later on in the episode with uh, with a, a former fencer and uh, somebody taking up a up a new role mm-hmm. who's you know, heavily involved with, with British fencing's world class program pretty much throughout its existence. Yeah. And he, yeah, so it's largely glowing in its praise and pointing out the sort of huge difference that made to, to his involvement in the sport and what, you know, the effect that he had on his aspirations and yeah. the way he was able to approach it. I think it's fair to say it wasn't, it was never perfect. It never had the scope that some people would have liked. You know, it was, it was largely focused on men's foil for mm-hmm. um, a large part of his life because that's where the best results were coming from. And I think British fencing and certainly UK sport were keen that that's where the, the majority of the money went to. If you were going to be honest, hand in heart, looking at the three disciplines in the UK, and you're holding the purse strings, you were going to fund men's foil. That's just how it was going to be. I don't think. It, I think everyone would. Like I'm an EPS. I would love to have seen a lot more funding into EPI. But if we're going to be completely honest with ourselves, we weren't producing the results that foil were. So it's obviously going to be foil. You know? Yeah. I know that. Uh, well, now that money's gone, we've gone back to where we were pre- previously. So uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see what what happens now. I mean, obviously, if the world class program does come to a, a complete halt, certainly in its current form and uh, with its current current funding gone, I mean, what I'd really like to see is that all the the knowledge and information that's been gathered over the ten years that the the world class program has existed being dispersed out to mm-hmm. clubs and coaches throughout the UK, so they can make good use of that knowledge rather than it simply being. Uh, a case of that's a world class program finished, and all that then just goes yeah. in the bin, stuck in the readers of the lost Ar- archive, uh, yes. you know, warehouse somewhere, you know. Yeah. So uh, I think it's important that we we take the absolute maximum out of the the world class program as it has functioned and existed over over its ten years, and make sure that the the people who can perhaps now look to to fill that gap still to p- try and produce international quality fencers 
um, have a lot of the, the information that was information and knowledge that was gleaned from the world class program throughout its throughout its time. I think that's uh, that's an important thing. Otherwise, yeah. it's going to be largely ten years wasted. Well, that's 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 what we hope isn't going to happen. Yeah, you know, and there are some glimmers of hope out there. I mean, obviously, Sabre's doing better than it has done for a long time. Uh, there's the sort of initiative from for Epi uh, from John Willis yeah. down south. So there is some hope actually out there. But whether you know, we really need to find a way to get all of the knowledge which is in the the existing world class program and and do something with it. I don't know if there's any kind of. It's hard to imagine now going back to the situation we used to have where we didn't have access to all these professional people who do all these things which a lot of people aren't actually aware of, the sports psychology, the nutrition, the S&C, all of those sorts of things. But there must be some of that still available because there's enough athletes out there who have experience of this. That Even if it's a, a much smaller version of the actual world-class programme, that we can do something with it, I think. We can find ways to fund sort yeah. of collective programmes you know, rather than individuals yeah. doing their thing. Because, well, I mean, serious fencers before the world-class programme, it's just like, well, Georgina Usher, yeah. British Fencing CEO, Formerly a, a world class epiest, mm-hmm. got some relatively minimal funding from from Sports Scotland, which allowed her to train uh, full time in Hungary for several years. Mm-hmm. But she also tracked down good advice on strength and conditioning and nutrition and psychology, mm-hmm. all all of her own efforts, yeah. without much in the way of guidance. Perhaps a little help from Sports Scotland, but uh, it is possible to do all these things on your own. It's going to it's going to cost you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also much harder. And I've got to say, I, I don't think one of the things that fencers aren't good at is collective effort. It's a very individual sport with very individual people involved in doing individual things. I don't think, as a sport, our culture is very collectively organised. You know, people don't have that outlook where it's it's all pushing in the same direction, doing this, going in this direction. There's a lot of people. I want to do it this way, and I want to do it that way. I, I, this is the thing that worries me: is that we're going to disintegrate again into you know people who just everyone doing their own thing. Yeah, yeah. Rather well, than everybody goes right, come on, let's just. No, once more into the into the trenches, guys. It's you know we've yeah, got to do it that work way. together to, yeah. to make us all better, rather than mm-hmm. me getting better than you. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, the thing is, I mean, Georgina did it, but you know, Georgina is a, a strong individual, very driven. You know, has all the ticks all the boxes for that kind of thing. But if you if you're coming into this and you you maybe don't have one or two of those little checkpoints, it's going to be much harder. You know, it's easier if the, if it's already been done. It's easier for whoever's following behind you if they can get access to whatever it is that you have. Right, rather than you know moving along and then just leaving nothing behind, essentially. Okay. I'm not saying Georgina's doing that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm <coughs> saying is, if you are not a Georgina type, it's mm-hmm. much more difficult if you don't have access to those resources. You know, that's the long-winded thing I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Here. Okay. I mean, I, yeah, you may be right. Um, I agree. Not everybody, not everybody is, is that focused. But um, I think if you're not, then you can get almost all the help that. You possibly could, and you're still not going to make it because it does take that type of character to be successful at the highest level, don't you? Well, think? You, yeah, but you can be driven, but not know what which direction you're going in. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, fully focused and committed in entirely the wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. And, you can make all the wrong decisions because there's no one there saying maybe. Okay, I can see what you're trying to do here, but maybe you need to professionalize in a different way. You need to right. do this instead of that. You know, there is no point in working on your deadlift until you can lift 200 kilos because that's not going to improve your fencing. You know, mm. you might oh. feel good and have massive guns, but you know that's not good for your fencing. So, <laughs> okay, you know. I'm not quizzing your 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 knowledge of uh, <laughs> the benefits of deadlifting there, Gav. But um, yeah, okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see um, what happens as the as the disappointment of having uh, yeah. our, all our funding taken away and uh, settles in and how how it will pan out and how British fencing will. Will address that and, and seek to mm-hmm. um, keep making progress at international level. 
So anyway, enough enough woe and misery. Mm-hmm. Um, on to on to something a bit brighter. I thought that we would move on to uh, the interview that I did with uh, Lawrence Halstead. Yes, British Olympian mm-hmm. uh, in Rio and in London at 2012, and uh, just a few days before the end of uh, 2016, announced as Danish fencing's new uh, performance director. And here's what he had to say. Lawrence, happy new year, and uh, welcome to the fencing podcast. Hello. Happy New Year to you too, Sean. Uh, well, obviously, you just come to the end of a, uh, a very busy year for you um, with the, the Olympics in Rio and uh, and your very recent appointment as the Performance Director for Danish Fencing. Uh, so, yeah, my first day today, actually. Well, there we go. Catch you. First, first day at work and you're scabbing off doing an interview with us. <laughs> that's, that's... Yeah, it's not, it's not full-time yet, so <laughs> I've got a bit of spare time as well. Good. I don't, I don't want to keep you from the, the main business, but... Before we focus on, on what's been happening uh, this year, I want to go back to, well, not that long ago, when you were uh, a small fencer, or just before you were a small fencer. I'm going to ask the usual question that almost every fencer gets asked is, how did you get started? Well, both of my parents were fencers, and both of them were British Olympic fencers, actually. Yeah. So my mum was running a kids' fencing club, and still is. It's the same one that's still, still going, Finchley Foil. Yep. And... I started when I was seven or eight years old in that club. It's actually the same club that Richard and James Davis. Yeah, it's, it's got started. a history of producing some outstanding fencers for a, um, a a small a small kids fencing club. It's, uh, yeah, it's got I've a good record. Why and how that came about that three of us started there? I mean, it obviously has something to do with Jemek being the coach there at the same time, and maybe just luck. Otherwise, I don't know. There, there must be more to it because three of our four. Yeah, it does, it does seem a bit of a coincidence that, uh, as you say, three out of the four British team for the, for the Olympics were all started at the same place when they were when they were little people. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. So that's that's where it started, and then I just went on from there into the into Southall and the national team after that. Yeah, and pretty successful cadet and junior career. I mean, that's when I first bumped into you. I think you were probably about seventeen or eighteen at the time, and part of a, a group with well, uh, Richard and uh, yourself and a, and a few others producing uh, good results at junior level. And I was I was trying to trying to remember the results that you had. I'm pretty sure you made world finals. Did you win the European Juniors or? Amazing? I won the European Junior Championships. Actually, more, kind of more significantly, I won that as a first year junior. Right. Which I think looking back, I mean, it was actually one of, it is one of the highlights of my career because it was so out of the blue. I'd made a, a cadet world final, so I came fifth the year before, but there, well, I hadn't done much in the junior scene before that Europeans that I won. Mm-hmm. And even more fun was looking back recently over the, those results. And that, that year, that, that junior year was just incredibly, incredibly powerful for, for the fences that had, that are still around. It was Kassara and Lepichu. yeah, I did have a have a look at that recently. Actually, the you know the fencers who have been stars of uh, men's foil over the last decade and a half were pretty much all all around at that time and have continued continued to be the stars ever since then. Yeah, and actually, the thing that made that even more special was that Richard also came second. Yeah, not partly that I'd beat him, beaten him in the final, which is fantastic, but <laughs> more, more that. Out of kind of out of the blue, Britain had a first and second. Yeah, which was probably the first, actually the first point where we made some impact on the on the international scene, where people kind of looked over and thought, "What Britain?" Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I and mean, suddenly we were uh, um, an, an international force, certainly at, at, at junior level, and it, it, it boded well. And I'm sure it generated interest uh, in other countries, and and suddenly it made British fencing think, "Yeah, we're we're onto something here." Yeah, I mean, it's always the the question of what you need 
you need results to get funding and you need funding to get results, but the funding is probably not going to come first. So you need to show some results somewhere before you get any kind of support. Yeah. And that was, that was basically the beginning of it, I think. Yeah, it probably was a combination of those and then Richard making the top eight in Athens, uh, I would think would probably be the yeah two two of the big moments for uh putting us on the map in terms of of getting funding um i'm going to go off on a slight tangent at this point um you went went through juniors uh went to university and i, I believe while you were at university the british fencing's world class program started so I, I don't think you joined the world class program right at its inception is that right maybe not right i was trying to remember exactly when that program started because i graduated in 2006 right Oh, maybe yes. maybe so then, because I think it was the end of two thousand and six that the the world class program was was set up. Maybe I did get in right at the beginning. Because okay. I I left. I graduated from university not really knowing what I wanted to do, and then suddenly we got this funding for a world class program, and mm-hmm. and the future became a lot clearer. Yeah, because your degree you now. Um, I did do a, <clears throat> a little bit of research before <clears throat> before doing this interview, and your degree's in um, social psychology. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, now, I must admit, until I until I found that out, I couldn't have told you what social psychology was, and I had to go and look it up. But um, rather oh, really? than me, <clears throat> rather than me giving a uh, an explanation, I found this, found this actually really interesting. So tell tell me what your degree was in, what what it was about. Well, it was pretty fascinating, actually. It's just uh, social psychology is everything to do with people interacting with each other and with kind of society in a, in a psychological sense. So we did uh, behavioural psychology, how people react to situations. We did. We studied kind of the psychology of gambling and of shopping and of crowd psychology and how people react in groups. There's also parts about child psychology. We we got an introduction to to all aspects of, of psychology, but it was it was the, the really I mean it was I was the one at university who was coming back from lectures and telling telling my friends what we'd learned that day because it was it's always pretty interesting mm-hmm. and I I retained a real kind of a, a fascination for. The psychology, especially now that I'm working a lot with it, yeah, because because part of it is it not um, <clears throat> how people modify their behaviours or um, how their behaviours are affected by um, not just interacting with other people but performing as well. That uh, you'll you'll change how you how you act if somebody's watching or listening. And I, I would have thought that for a, a high level athlete, that that must be quite an interesting insight to see how how you perform in front of somebody else affects how you behave. Yeah, well, that that's certainly true. But actually, we had no sports psychology in my degree. All right, covered at all. So all of my sports psychology has learned has been learned kind of on the job since yeah. then. But what that what that degree gave me was a real appreciation for for the power of of psychology and the power of the brain and what it how it affects us and the importance of of training it and focusing on that as an area of performance. Right. So when you when you joined the world class program, it was it wasn't its infancy, and I think it's probably fair to say that it wasn't uh, it wasn't perfect at, at, at the outset. A lot of well, certainly a, a relatively large amount of money opportunity for the program to develop from from scratch. Um, what, what was your experience of the world class program? Well, it's really it's been brilliant looking back over that that. This whole period, this last ten years, because a lot of the fences, a lot of the young guys that we we train with now, we were tra- I was training with, they they kind of see it as it has been recently, which is a pretty state of the art facility with a lot of professional staff and really quite a well, a, a truly a world class program. But 
back then we had a part-time performance director and we were kind of cobbling together national trainings and we were just beginning to centralize in in one place and then another and like it wasn't it wasn't anywhere near the the kind of structure that we had we have at the moment and it, it really was just starting out slowly into a kind of making that the first few steps on the long path to professionalism so we had a lot we still had a lot of amateur processes yeah at the time and we just kind of and, and that shows because our results were were pretty sporadic i mean there weren't fantastic results richard had some some great results but they were also sporadic there wasn't consistency at the senior level yeah and that was because we we still had a lot of our amateur kind of systems and processes in place. Yeah, it's a, a learning process for everybody, I suppose, uh, not just the fencers, the uh, Graham Watts, who was the first uh, performance manager, uh, and, and as you say, a, a part-time one. Um, yeah, but, and I really, I really liked having having Graham in charge at the time. I, I was I was a fan of his, and I, st- I still am. It was like you say, everyone in British fencing was kind of learning learning together. And for us as fencers, I think it was fantastic. It was the first opportunity that fencers in Britain had to be somewhat professional, to be paid to train. Mm, yes, without the, the distraction of uh, uh, having to find a job. Because um, in the interview that I did with uh, Dan Kellner a couple of episodes, um, he was saying that when <clears throat> uh, when he uh, didn't qualify for the Olympics in 2000, he was still uh, still working and uh, fitting in his training around that. And he he realised that after that he had to he had to find a way to make make it possible for him to train full time if he was going to achieve his full potential yeah i mean in this day and age where the best in the world are professional there's almost no way of competing with them if you're not also able to dedicate that much time and energy to it so um, there are some rare cases but really to compete with the best and to compete for world medals you have to be if not full time you need to prioritize the fencing over everything else yeah Absolutely. Um, so, on, on the world class program um, and training full time for for several years with the uh, with the London Olympics on the on the horizon. Um, in your in the season re- leading up to the Olympics, you had you had some injuries, as I recall. Well, one one particular injury. Yeah, I only had I only needed one. To <laughs> one one big one. Big difference. Yeah, I I I fell. I kind of tripped over in a fight in training and. For the first time in my life, broke a bone in my body, which happened to be a very important bone in my wrist on my right hand, my fencing yeah. hand. Um, which that was in January of 2012. So having got five, six, almost yeah, six years of training up until the Olympic year, I then broke my broke my hand in at the very beginning of of the Olympic year. It was pretty devastating. It really, it was amongst if not the darkest kind of darkest period of my life because it was it just seemed so so wrong that this could happen after all of that preparation and for the first time to be to get an injury like that so i had i had uh actually i actually had, had to have two surgeries to wire up my hand and then take those wires out again and to put a bolt in the in the bone to keep it together and i was out for out of fencing for four months from january till late april may and I actually I remember forcing the the doctor to allow me to have a plastic cast on, even though he he really recommended that I have a full full normal cast mm-hmm. because I just had to keep doing physical training and sweating, and I needed to be able. I, 
I just couldn't. I couldn't go through the psychological pain of taking off a, norm, a full cast and having what what you see of an arm after that. So I needed to be able to wash and and sweat and and keep doing that. So I trained. I was able to train physically pretty hard after soon after the operation, but it was a pretty significant period without fencing for the first half of that that pre-Olympic kind of season. Yeah, um, and uh, well, the end result in that, of course, was that. Um, yeah. You weren't selected for the individual for uh, for London, um, selected for reserve, and and came on in the team event and performed um, fantastically, as I recall. Um, but uh, how how was how did London feel as an Olympics for you? Well, yeah, that was a true roller coaster of emotions because after that after that injury, I had actually I actually felt I came back quickly enough, and I in the last World Cup of the season, I'd I'd performed pretty actually pretty well and i was back to i was close to close to my 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 optimum again and i I remember fencing really well in the team event but i still was was not selected for the individual which kind of absolutely devastated me at the time i was fully expecting to be straight back in the team in the team and the individual having shown that i was i was back to back to nearly my best and still had a couple of months leading up to the olympics to to improve on it so um, I really took some time to kind of come to terms with with that new that new position, and in the end, I was I, I that was actually also when I was I started working with a sports psychologist that I really respected and got a lot out of. So that was a really pivotal part of my development as an athlete, and the work that I did with with her was was really significant to me, and has kind of kept on since then. I've learned a lot from them, um, and actually, I, I went into the Olympics in in a place that I, I could, I was proud of actually that I put all of that pretty much behind me to a play, to a point where I could compete and, and give my everything to the team without any kind of, without any bitterness from, from the individual. And I just wanted to do my best for the team and to support them at the time. And I felt, I felt I did that in the end. So I actually came out of the games from a performance point of view, feeling quite, feeling very proud of, of how I, how I'd done and then, of course, the whole Olympics, just still getting to be involved in that from, from an athlete's perspective was just like a dream. Like I've now experienced two, and, and a home games is still magnitudes more amazing than, than an away games, just because of having all your friends and family in, this, in the venue and all the build-up and... Like we were on the tube one one evening soon after our, com- our last competition, and people were coming up to us. We were in we were in our British suits, and people were coming up to us to thank us. They have no idea who we were. <laughs> they were coming to thank us for, for what we'd done, and like just these amazing things that that happened around competing in your home games and also in my hometown. Yeah. So that that's something that I can I can like I will happily remember my whole life. So after after London 2012, <clears throat> you you took a bit of time out from the sport. Um, you did a bit of travelling. I, I did I did sort of follow your progress um, uh, post Olympics on on where you went, but it did seem a, a huge world tour. Talk me through where all you went again. Yeah, well, I just decided after that I was pleased with with how the place I'd got to at the Olympics, but the whole experience had been so kind of draining and emotional that I just needed to get away from the fencing world and kind of explore explore the real world and some other other parts of me and other kind of aspects of life so i i booked a 
actually a full year of kind of a gap year of traveling through South America and then visiting my sister in Australia and some friends in South Africa. And then I had I had a period in, in Copenhagen, in Denmark, where I was visiting friends and I meet the girl that I would fall in love with and now I'm very close to marrying, which kind of led on to a whole new part of life. But uh, in between that, I also had a trip in, uh, I had four months in Canada learning how to guide adventures, adventure sports because I was considering that I might want to go and live in the in the wilderness and be a canoe and climbing and glacier climbing guide. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I do remember that. Yes. Um, that but I was drawn too much back to Copenhagen and, and Helena. So as soon as that course finished, I was back in Copenhagen. And and yeah, and I, I continued, actually. I, I didn't come back to fencing for a little while. I lived a fairly normal life in Copenhagen <laughs> for a while afterwards. But couldn't, couldn't stay, away in the, stay away in the end and uh, what, join, the, join the club at uh, Canton? Yeah, actually, I, I fenced at both. So there are two two very strong clubs here, Hellerup and Trekanton, and I was fencing at fencing at both for for a while. I was just staying in. I, I was I was just enjoying my fencing. I was fencing once or twice a week, and I just uh, I wasn't taking it too seriously. But slowly, that that kind of fire, that that feeling, that tingling came back. And then when was it? It was. Actually, it was after another year, so I'd been out for two years of competition, and it was actually because I I saw how well the other guys were doing, how well James had come on and Marcus was coming on as well, and it looked like we had the potential for a team that I'd never been able to, never been a part of before, that we'd been searching for for ten years by then. Mm-hmm. Um, this this amazing statistic actually when. I came back. Yeah, I came back in 2014. But uh, up when we started this team project, me and Richard were kind of consistently in the senior team from 2006. So leading up to the point where we found where we joined together with J- with James and Marcus, we got through we got through 15 different team members. I think we we counted <laughs> in that period, which is an incredible. So me and Richard plus. 15 other people to try and find the two that would kind of complete this team that could compete and beat any any other team in the world. So it was it was an amazingly long long path to to get this world class team, and that's that's really what I saw when I that kind of gave me the the final spark that I needed to come back was hang on we could actually do something with this team now. So when you uh, returning to the fold, did you uh, did you contact British Fencing and say, well I'm back and I'd, I'd quite fancy a bit more of this and Rio looks quite an attractive prospect and uh, it looks like you've got a team that that I would want to be part of or or did British Fencing approach you and say well here you're doing a bit of fencing how do you how do you fancy a return how did it work uh, it was a, there was a little bit of both really I'd stayed in contract in contact with Andre who was the national coach then and he'd actually come from Copenhagen to the British job so I saw him just as he was leaving Copenhagen and I was arriving and he said, "Look, Lawrence, if you if you want to come back, then let me know." And then it, I, it took me a, a while longer, and I I did get back get back in touch with him, and I said, "I'm I'm fencing a bit now, and I'm I'm up for coming back into the team." In fact, I think I said, "I'm going to come back into the team," and they didn't <laughs> they didn't accept they didn't accept my word for it at the beginning, so I had to kind of show that I could still wield a sword. <laughs> uh, 
And so they gave me a, a trial period of, uh, they, they allowed me to go to the, the first three World Cups of 2014, I guess it was. Yeah, yeah been... 2014-15 season started there. Yeah, yeah, um, and I was I was paying my own way for those competitions, um, and I I did well enough. Actually, I got a 64 I think in the first one and a 32 in the second one, and or 32 in the third one, and uh, that was enough to yeah to to show them that I still knew what I was doing. Yeah, and then uh, and then I got a chance in the team as well. And how how did it feel to to come back after after an absence of a couple of years? Did it feel uh, just like returning to familiar surroundings, or did it feel a bit strange after having been out for a while? It felt a bit different in that I was no longer a kind of a, a part of a, a centralised national system. That I was out of the country. I was a bit older. I was actually mainly because I was coming back with a new perspective that I had had long enough out that I. Kind of came back knowing what I wanted to do, and it was all about the team. Then I really wasn't interested in in more individual success or getting improving my individual performances. I just wanted to get this team to a place and experience kind of real, real team success to get some medals to qualify for the Olympics as a team and to to get that thing that that kind of feeling of power that we were always looking for for, for all those years because it is a fantastic. Uh, experience when you get success as a team, especially in fencing, because as individuals, there's so much pressure on you in the individual competition, and there's so much disappointment if you do badly. But that is that's kind of shared. Those emotions are all shared and 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 enhanced in the in a good way as a team. So um, I came back knowing that this was always going to be about the team and qualifying for Rio, and the so it was the first three the, the individual competitions were just a a, pro, a kind of means to an end of getting myself a chance in the team, and then once back in the team, it felt it felt great. Really, that was where I wanted to be, and and I know I could see that the other guys were, were kind of were, were pleased to have me back in there, and especially that I could I could bring some experience. That it was a somewhat uh, young team when I arrived. Richard wasn't an oldie, but <laughs> there were three younger guys around, and then. I brought a bit more balance to it by being another experienced fencer. I remember actually the first, my first competition in the team was in Paris and our first match was against Japan. So they, they had a rule at the time in the team that if you lost a fight 5-0, you got automatically substituted. <laughs> my first fight of my first team event back was against Yuki Oto. <laughs> yeah, welcome back. <laughs> in the first fight of that team event. And I was losing, I went 4-0 down. Which, which is, it's, it's fantastic because I was very close to my team run ending almost <laughs> in one back. fight. Yeah, shortest short comeback ever. Three hits against Yuki to lose five to three, and then I fenced much better in the next two matches. But that that was kind of significant as well. I don't know. If, I think Andre would have given me another chance after that. But yeah, uh, it's just kind of significant that I like I like remembering that I I was that. I was at that point and that close, to, that close to having a, a one fight return. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that was that was the first, and then we just kind of grew as a team from there. We there was it was a very different feeling from from London, even though three of us were the same. Especially because three of me and James lived in different countries by then. Yeah. And also, James and Marcus had matured a lot, and James was on kind of just a bit of a superstar in in the world at the time. So he. 
he wasn't just this this young kid on the team, kind of amazed by everything. Mm. He was he'd grown up and he kind of owned a lot of owned the world by then. Yeah. So I came in with a with a different with a different role, though still as a kind of elder statesman role as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, once once the team had been um, established, as, as you say, um, several years of. Um, you and Richard being in the team and an assortment of others uh, taking out the spaces but it seemed that once the once the team was set uh, it was then pushing on to to the difficult task of actually trying to qualify the team for real um, and it was a qualifying period of a of a year um, what how many competitions six competitions I think go into to making up qualification for the team event um, it's a relatively short period and and very intense and um, clearly a lot of co- a lot of competition for um, getting a team qualified. Um, so tell me how that felt because it was it was various highs and lows along the way in that in that qualifying year. Yeah, it was. It just seemed never ending that year of qualification. It, yeah, I think it, you're right. There's only six competitions, but they just they stretch over the entire season and they it just it never was comfortable enough. That uh, of course we were we were competing against Germany, who kind of we, there was when I when we were starting the national team and the senior team anyway, there was just never a chance that we would ever be better than Germany. And then this this season came along, and we had to overhaul them and Poland and hope for other other results to go kind of the right way as well. And we started, I mean, we started off the season that the qualification period anyway with with a terrible result. Thirteenth or something in in St. Petersburg, so it was kind of a blow immediately. But then the next competition was the there was the European Championships, and that we had one of I think we had probably gave one of our best, if not our best ever performances as a team, beating Italy, kind of smashing Italy in the top eight. We won forty five twenty five, and we won every one of the nine fights. Yeah, it was one of those ones where I, I followed the live scores um, as it was happening, and it was one of those where you couldn't quite believe it. It was uh, and another one, and another win, and another win, and the lead is just stretching and stretching, and kind of um, sitting in front of a sitting in front of a computer, going, "Well, well this can't keep going. <laughs> Surely this is going to go wrong at some point." Until forty five, yeah, forty five twenty five, an absolute an absolute thrashing, an amazing performance. Yeah, I'll remember that one for a long time. I don't think anyone can remember Italy losing a match that that big, not that I've heard of. And it was just it was a sign that 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 was our our team kind of saying this is what we can do. And people really really sat up and took a bit of notice then. I think. And I remember we we've talked about it since that as we were preparing to go out for that match, the Italians were. Not their usual selves, but particularly kind of relaxed and taking selfies together and and just enjoying themselves, fairly confident in their their ability to do away with this British team. And we looked at them, and we thought, right, we're gonna do you now. <laughs> and we came out just fighting a lot harder. And in team fencing, having momentum just means a huge amount. So and we also just we knew we had the quality by then. They they could they just weren't able to kick up enough notches once we had that momentum behind us to to overhaul us because each one of us had had the had the quality to just to to combat them so um, that was that was a, a great result but we still lost to germany in that competition and and then there was the world championships and we won against germany by one point to make it into the top eight which was probably the most significant part of that whole season 
because world championships counts for more points. Yeah. So it, just those first three competitions kind of sum up the whole that whole season. It, it was just it just went up and down and up and down. And then straight after the world championships, we had another terrible result coming twelfth or thirteenth again, or maybe even fifteenth. And and so we were just we never gave ourselves a rest. We never just we had we were dealing with so many different different things and pressures and emotions. And we just kind of had to had to go with it and, and try and improve each time and and we developed a lot actually through those those ups and downs. So by the time we got close to the end, we had our, our best result of the season in Paris, just second to last competition, and we, we got a, a bronze medal. And as you saw, Sean, beating France, first of all beating Germany yeah. by a few points, and then beating France quite comfortably in the end in Paris. Uh, how, how did you feel about that? I felt pretty. Um, that that was a, a great performance, and it was particularly enjoyable. Obviously, as a as a visiting British supporter, uh, surrounded by uh, thousands of cheering French people, um, uh, at least at the start of the match, uh, and then looking thoroughly disgruntled by the end of it, and a little little band of um, travelling Brits um, going a bit mental. It was a fantastic performance, and uh, one that was thoroughly dominant. Really, um, again, it was one of those performances where. Uh, British team like they could they could be anybody, and that's I think really what uh, what everyone was looking for. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, including the the team themselves, that nobody was nobody was impossible to beat, and that uh, you know the world the world was your oyster. If it all came together, then yeah, anything was possible. Yeah, and we we did in fact beat every one of the top teams in the in the year and a half leading up to the Olympics. But also that was interesting just interesting to point out that the the fact that we had that traveling band of supporters with us in Paris and then you were in Bonn, like that, that meant, meant quite a lot to us as well. But we kind of saw that we were doing something that people were interested in following and were passionate enough to come and buy tickets to come and watch the competitions, watch us, watch us fence. So it, it really tied into our, our sense of like, we have, it was partly a responsibility, but also a, added to our, our sense of kind of power of well, we can do this. We have people behind us and, People care about us doing this to the point they're going to come and support us. So it, it meant quite a lot to us at the time that we had we had that group there supporting us. So thank you, Sean. <laughs> my, my pleasure, my pleasure. I mean, Bonn Bonn was very different because Bonn was the um, I, I made the decision after Paris because I, I really enjoyed that so much. Um, that I thought, well, Bonn's not that far away, and I'll, I'll go to that as well. Um, and a very different atmosphere in in Bonn to Paris. Uh, Paris is uh, an enormous event. You get thousands of spectators um, coming in to watch. Um, whereas Bonn is um, a, you know a kind of large sports hall in the middle of nowhere. And uh, in terms of supporters, apart from the actual fencers, um, there was about forty German kids that were incredibly noisy, and me, as far as I could tell. Um, so it had a quite different atmosphere. And of course, that was the um, the final team event. Um, so talk me through that day because it was pretty stressful for me um, as a spectator, yeah. and I can imagine that it was not much different for for you it guys was, and the team. It was pretty. It was pretty horrible, actually. <laughs> it ended up pretty horrible. Yeah, we again we lost we lost our, our last sixteen match to Germany, but we were in a position where they had to do pretty they had to do fantastically to win to to actually overhaul us. So they needed to come. In the top two in the final, I think. But having lost to them, it mean it meant it was all out of our hands, and that that put us in this this kind of nightmare situation. I was just 
we we would we had to do our job and win our matches, which was fine. We did that fairly fairly professionally. But there were point there was a point where Germany were facing France in the next round, mm. and they were winning, and they never beat they never beat France, but they were actually winning by ten points or something. Yeah. And I just couldn't bear watching anymore. <laughs> Every point for Germany was just this stake through my heart, and every. <laughs> Point for France, I got way too giddy and excited. Yeah. So I just I had to leave. I had to leave the hall, but the sports hall, the entire complex was so small that even anywhere I was, I could hear the German fans cheering <laughs> every point. So I, <laughs> I I ended up I couldn't and it was raining outside. I couldn't leave the I couldn't leave the hall. So I spent about ten fifteen minutes listening, trying not to hear these German cheers <laughs> before I went back in to. to and just kind of sucked it up and watched the end of the match. And this is the probably the first and only time I've I've been very grateful to Owen Lepeshu for being such an incredible fencer and especially a finisher in a in a team match. Yeah. Because he just did the job they needed to beat Germany, and the, it was fairly tight. It was close at the end, but he just did he just did did the job and put Germany out and gave us almost put us over the line. Um, that made it a lot. A lot nicer a day, but then we still needed China to lose before before actually they needed to win the competition. But then we could win. That wasn't quite like so likely, but they were in the semi final, and again, probably for the first time in my life, I was over overjoyed to see Russia <laughs> being absolutely on fire and giving China no chance of competing because they just they they just happened to want to. Nothing to do with us. They just wanted to show what they were worth capable of as well at the same time, which I could not have been happy with. So they annihilated China in the semi-final, which we, uh, yeah. Then it became just a, a a real day to remember. It was all that darkness was lifted, and we kind of celebrated from then through into the night. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. yeah. It was a. Uh... Uh, a thoroughly stressful day and uh, the, the full full range of emotions there. But yeah, delighted to be there when um, when you and the and the rest of the team uh, clinched that qualification for Rio. It was uh, it made made the trip worthwhile. Um, yeah, I remember the referee of that Russia China fight, Florin Georgie. He he announced the he announced the, the result as they finished, as they got the last hit. Russia. He announced the result and said, and with that, Great Britain qualified for the Olympics. <laughs> and that was. Uh, that was it. We were sitting, we were standing arm in arm watching that last hit, and that was that was a moment to to really to live for. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so onto the games themselves. Um, a bit of a gap, obviously, between Bonn and various other competitions, including another good individual result. I mean, you have focused on um, doing a bit for for getting the team qualified for Rio and then uh, performing once you were there. But um, uh, since you returned, you've had some, some pretty decent individual results as well, including a, a, a top eight finish at the European Championships in 2016 and, and a top eight finish at the World Championships, Champions, uh, World Championships in 2015 as well. So um, while you've kind of glossed over those and focused on the team, there's um, uh, still signs of, of life in you <laughs> as, a, as an individual fencer as well. Yeah, well, I wasn't a bad fencer. Uh, I, I was, I, I was still, I was still trying hard in the individuals. I just, uh, I wasn't too bothered about the results, and that's possibly why I, I could put in some good performances because I was, uh, I was not, uh, I was under, I gave myself no pressure to in those competitions. And yeah, having had only my best, previous best in world championships was top sixty fours. So to get into the final was, I, I was pretty pleased with that, to be honest, especially. Especially when we added to that with 
beating Germany in the team event. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was there. I, it's always nice to get individual results. I could feel though, even getting the getting nice, getting winning, winning nice individual fights. They they didn't give me that satisfaction that that the team do that the team wins did. So I'd completely kind of moved my priorities over to the team, and that it was just they were they were bonuses. The individual results. Right. <laughs> yeah, not a bad bonus though. And I think most people would be quite happy with that sort of a bonus in their in their fencing career. Um, so onto the games themselves. Um, uh, yeah, t- tell me about your experiences of, uh, of of Rio. Well, it was performance-wise, it, it was an, an anti-climax. And again, individually, I, I knew I had a hard fight in again against uh, Chen, and I had a, I had a plan, and it. I actually didn't stick to it strongly enough, um, and he's just a great fencer. So I, I, I can't, I can't have too many complaints about that. And in the team event, we, we, I think we almost did enough to win that match, and we can, we were pretty, we were completely deflated afterwards. Actually, we really thought that we were capable of, of beating anybody and and winning a medal, uh, any kind of any medal actually. Mm. Um, so it was, <clears throat> it was pretty tough. Tough to take. Um, I don't know. I, not much more to say about the the feeling about it. We just. I I think we we could be proud of ourselves that we we did everything we could. Um, it just it just wasn't to be then. And uh, yeah, it's, around that, I think everything was was phenomenally kind of organized and and run. We had. To be a part of that British team, which was so successful, just is is a is a, a huge honour. Actually, I mean the the amount of effort that the BOA put into kind of running everything for the British team, you have to see it to believe it. And just no no stone is left unturned in kind of providing for us. So I th- I truly think that we were the best the best looked after Olympic team of all of them. And it's it shows in the in the medals in the success and it was just such a such a shame that we that we couldn't add our medal to that tally because we really thought we were capable of it yeah but we have to be we have to be proud of what we did and proud of having been a part of that that team that that did so well um it really is in an incredible period to have been in london and rio for those two games at this at this kind of height of british olympic sport is yeah, it's something that we can be really just yeah can keep us proud for a long time. I think yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> after the Olympics, you'd, you'd already announced that uh, uh, Rio would be the end of the line for you as a as a competitor, um, and you were already <clears throat> uh, working part time as a technical director for for Canton. Yeah, uh, performance director, sporting director. Sporting director, actually, I think is the title I was looking for, yeah. Um, and then at, at the very end of this year, um, it was announced that you're going to be taking on the role of a performance director for, for Danish fencing, which uh, an exciting new role for you, and, and I, I would think a very good thing for, for Danish fencing as well. So t- tell me what, what that's going to involve for you. Yeah, well, this is the, the first kind of step towards professionalism for Danish fencing, as British fencing had 10 years ago over 10 years ago um they it's a really exciting time actually i'm really proud to be given this this role now because there is some fantastic talent and commitment just passion amongst the fences here at the moment and they're they're all young fences who are who are 
keen to to make real senior success. So I'm I've kind of given, been given a fantastic opportunity to to impart the knowledge that I've learned in the, under the British system into into the Danish one, which is I, I think I'm I'm well placed to do it, having seen British fencing rise from amateurism to pretty much full professionalism in ten years. So then hopefully I can I can help Danish fencing do it a lot quicker. And I think there's there's a lot of things that you can yeah, that experience should be able to give us some shortcuts, mm. so to speak. Yeah, speed up the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, obviously <clears throat> just before the last podcast and just, just before I um I met you in Copenhagen recently, um it was announced that British fencing would not be funded by UK sport for the um Tokyo Olympic cycle. So that Ten years of uh, work in developing a world class program and producing a, a genuinely world class team in the men's foilists now now looks like it's going to come to well either to a complete end or to something hugely scaled down from what it has been. Um, what are your feelings on that? I mean, it must feel a bit strange to um, to kind of almost see that from afar, having having retired and and living in a, a different country now as well. Yeah, it's actually, it's devastating, really. Uh, I feel like, I mean, that's been my entire time as a senior fencer in, in Britain, and I've, I've seen it build from from almost nothing to what we what we have had recently, which is a, a truly world-class system. And, yeah, it, I, it's really tough to, to think too much about because so much work from so many people went into that. And if we if it gets kind of cut out of the knees, then I I don't know if it can if it's going to take that long to build it back up again if we ever get funded back in Britain again. So yeah, it is really. I mean, I, from a personal point of view, I'm yeah I'm not significantly affected because I am I was already planning to move on, but that doesn't stop it being really kind of difficult to think about. So, Lawrence, I'm, I'm going to be, we've been chatting for ages, actually. I just realized just spotted how long we've been going for. Um, but it has been absolutely fascinating. And I'm delighted you, you could take the time out before, before starting your, starting your day job. I'd like to thanks very much. Thank you very much for, for joining me today. And it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. And I, I really wish you every success for 2017. And, um, I'll hopefully see you again before, before too long. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Pleasure talking to you too. Okay. Thanks, Lawrence. I think that was another successful interview there with Lawrence. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously Lawrence is a good guy. We've spoken to him lots. You forgot, you forgot to mention one of his other talents, the Guardian columnist. It's true, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, he wrote, wrote a couple of interesting articles in the lead-up to Rio, uh, mm-hmm. one for The Nation and one in The Guardian, both intelligent, lucid pieces. Yep. Um, the, the first one that he wrote uh, was largely about uh, the sort of platform that being uh, an Olympic, Olympic athlete gives you to, yep. to express an opinion in public, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, most people don't have the the opportunity to do, which I, I thought was a really interesting point. I mean, mm-hmm. gave a number of his own opinions in that piece, and the the one that he wrote for the Guardian was about uh, the sustainability of the Olympics. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, our most recent Olympic host city attempted to auction off most of the oh, yes. most of the venues that um, that are built for the games without any success whatsoever. No no buyers taken for them. Yep. So basically, are left with a a whole load of facilities that they don't have a use for and are going to have to try and maintain and support and find a way to make them even vaguely mm. fin- financially viable. So it's a sort of continuing strain on the Brazilian economy. And, um, yeah, Lawrence's article addressed a number of those issues, you know, the sheer cost of staging Olympics yep. in a different city every four years, plus plus Winter Olympics as well. 
So I'll, I'll make sure we put a link up on to, to definitely both those articles on our on our show notes. Uh, mm. Well worth a read. Um, and not only that, but I mean, in terms of uh, the, the problems that Rio is having, it's not the first time we've seen it. So Vancouver or uh, Toronto, Montreal, 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 Montreal yeah, yeah. first made a, a a massive loss, and they only paid it off thing. thirty years later or something. Yes, like that. Yeah. It took them forever. Yeah. And the problems that uh, more recently Athens had hosted the Olympics in 2004, mm-hmm. their economy falls through the floor, and now pretty much all the facilities that were built for that a huge strain on the public yeah. purse, find there's no money in the public purse anymore, and all those facilities pretty much are are in ruins now. Yeah, which is a real shame because they were nice. They were <laughs> very nice at the time. Yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly on, um, the, the the thing about um, Lawrence, I didn't realise he did had a degree in sort of social psychology, which was quite interesting. Yes, I mean, yeah. I I, th- I knew that he had a degree in psychology, but I hadn't appreciated exactly which which branch of it was, which is why I kind of quizzed him about it mm-hmm. um, as much as I did because yeah. it was it was really interesting. And yeah, I was a little bit surprised when when he said that there was no sports psychology involved in that part mm-hmm. of the degree because it, it struck me as something that would be very relevant for high level performers in front of you know an audience, their peers, coaches. And... Yeah, I thought I was a bit surprised by that as well. You think it would be something that if you were an athlete and it was you know you were doing a psychology degree that maybe if you spoke to your the course leader they would build something in for you. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, the sort of the, the ironic thing here is I've actually had more university level sports psychology training than Lawrence because it was actually in a, <laughs> a module in my biology degree when I was at university and I ended up doing a bit of sports psychology. So there you go. You know, it's a long, long time ago, but you know, yeah, yeah. How much have you applied it since? Oh, well, probably none of it. Let's be fair. Yeah, but the interesting thing here is obviously we talked a little bit about the world-class programme uh, beforehand. Lawrence is a product of the world-class programme. Not entirely, but, you know, yeah. he's certainly I mean, been he, through he, it. He joined it at uh, a relatively young age and uh, mm-hmm. was, was with the programme, he said, pretty much from its from its inception. Last few years when he was uh, living in Denmark, or either not fencing or, or uh, living in Denmark, um, sort of remotely a part of yeah. it, but uh, yeah, he, he so he's obviously he's got good reasons to be settling in Denmark. But this is one of the things we were talking about about how much of the talent that we were producing during the world class program era we're going to retain. How much of that skill are we going to still have in Britain as a as we wind down the you know the, the WCP? I can't keep saying this. The WC as we wind it down, how much of the people that that was producing are we going to keep, and how many are going to go off and do their own thing now? Because the funding isn't there to support it. We know that we know that all the professional guys are going to go. We know that, but you know everyone else. Lawrence has obviously got a good reason for being in Denmark. Uh, we know that Toff is off to Cyprus. Marcus is back now. Richard is continuing. Uh, but what about what about the, the the group of juniors that are following on behind them? What about the cadets that are following behind the juniors? What's going to happen? Yeah, here, you know, um, <clears throat> who knows at this stage? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm no doubt more information will appear. As we kind of count down towards the end of the the sort of last funding cycle that we're just at the, the sort of tail end of, yeah. Um, certainly, all the professional guys, all the strength and conditioning, all your all your sports science side, are, yeah, will that's be, all going. Yeah. Will be off somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So the sort of fencing fencing people involved, if you like, what what happens to them? What what do they have? Because the thing was, there was always there was always quite a lot of turnover in the in the staff in the world class program on this on this professional sports science side, um, but also amongst the fencers itself. Um, yeah. Lawrence talks about the number of uh, fencers who had been in a British team with him and Richard over the course of that sort of ten years that they were they, they were in the British team. Mm-hmm. That's a huge number, and an awful lot of them now have really no involvement in the sport whatsoever. They've they've done their bit. They leave the world class program for one reason or another, mm-hmm. and 
and are never seen again. And that's that's a, a resource that really we we could really use now. Yeah, to have have those guys have experience of uh, what high level international fencing and training for that is actually like. Well, especially uh, if we're going to cobble something together with the remains of it all. Yeah. So you need to have people who have that experience. I mean, we, we know of a couple of them that are, that are sort of floating around out there, but there's, that's one of the things I do worry about because obviously you start to see this everyone dispersing as a result of it. Uh, another, an interesting thing here is the, the sort of the similarity in Lawrence's experience and Dan's experience where there was nothing. Then these guys come along into the transitional period. They sort of blow up. They show everybody the way, the, the way to go for the future. Yeah. What's happened in America, though, that just continued. Yes. They did their own thing. They found their own route to, route to success. But for us, I think it's on the seesaw at the moment. Yes, it'd be. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens. Other than that, it's a good interview. So it was. Always a pleasure to talk to him. So I think that just about uh, wraps us up for for part one. Again, we've uh, got such a massive amount to tell you that we're going to split it into two parts, and we look forward to seeing you in part two. See you soon.